When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. the buildup that Mormon's just given us at the end of chapter 10, summarizing the destruction in chapter 8, pointing us to the prophecies in brass plates and gold plates that showed these things would eventually come. He tells us what he's about to record. It almost seems like he's getting himself geared up to this. This is my most important moment as a historian, to narrate the coming of Christ. Well, he makes an end at the end of chapter 10, in order to prepare himself to make an incredible beginning in chapter 11. And here we are, the climax of the Book of Mormon, the coming of Jesus Christ. Chapter 11, verse 1, And now it came to pass that there were a great multitude gathered together of the people of Nephi. And where did they gather to? It's been almost a year now. Destruction in the first month of that 34th year. It's now near the end of this year. And they gather to the temple. What better place to go to find Christ, to return unto him, having repented of our sins. He says it's the temple which was in the land bountiful, and there's no better place to gather to prepare to meet God. If you were to review every time the name bountiful is mentioned in the Book of Mormon, this is actually the final one. It's all been leading up to this, but there's so much foreshadowing, symbolically at least, in previous mentions of bountiful. Beautiful principles we can draw from that. First one's way back in 1 Nephi 17. Not this bountiful, but one of its predecessors. It was their launching point from an old world in hopes of eventually coming to a new, a promised land. That bountiful, that ancient Arabian bountiful, marked the end of one journey and the beginning of a new one. And doesn't that describe the coming of Christ into our lives? He is the end and the beginning, after all. No better place to start anew than bountiful with the coming of Christ into your life. Fast forward to Alma chapter 22, and we get a little Book of Mormon geography here. That bountiful was north of Zarahemla, on the borders of the land before you went into this land northward that was described as desolation. So bountiful borders desolation. It creates a barrier. It's one last line of defense. That if you are wandering away from Zarahemla, off into some desolate land of destruction beyond, bountiful will stand in your way. Christ will be there, warning you against straying any further. Or for those that have already ignored that and wandered off into desolation but have come to themselves like some prodigal son, what's your first step back home to Zarahemla? It's passing through Bountiful. It's coming to Christ. It's recognizing that he's the gatekeeper to bring you home. 
later in Alma 27, when the anti-Nephi-Lehi's convert and move into Nephite territory, what land do they give them? The land Jershon, which happens to border the land Bountiful. If you're leaving enemy territory, conversion is one of the most beautiful preliminary steps on your way to finding Christ in Bountiful. In Alma 51, it was in the borders of the land Bountiful that Teancum made his stand against Amalekiah. Talk about a place worth defending, a place worth standing up to wickedness at the sight of Christ. Or in Alma 52, where the land Bountiful is fortified so that they can secure the narrow pass. You see, there's this geographical bottleneck just north of Bountiful. This was a place that people had to deal with in their comings and goings. Anytime we choose to wander or return, we do have to account for Bountiful in our lives. Later in Alma 52, the Nephite armies are unable to reconquer additional cities. So where does Teancum go? He returns to Bountiful to wait for the coming of Moroni that he might receive strength to his army. Bountiful is a beautiful place to be with Jesus as you wait for increased strength to come into your life. In Alma 53, it's bountiful that is heavily fortified, a strong wall of timbers and earth to an exceeding height. In Alma 55, it's to bountiful that Nephites take the Lamanite prisoners of war because that city is guarded with an exceedingly great force. There's strength there. Remember Nephites, what did they do with prisoners of war? They tried to rehabilitate them. They tried to teach the gospel to them so they would make a covenant of peace. No better place to do it than the place to which Jesus would come. Again, bountiful to me is such a beautiful metaphor for Christ in our lives. When he comes to us, we're having a bountiful experience. The name itself bespeaks abundance. And that's what Jesus offers us too. In Alma 63, it was from the borders of the land bountiful that Hagoth launched his ships. Are you ready to conquer new horizons? to head out in spiritual directions that you've never thought possible, then start in Bountiful and launch with Jesus aboard your ship. In Helaman 1, Coriantumr conquers Zarahemla first, but then what does he do? He sets his sight on Bountiful. Yeah, I may try to take down the prophet first, but I'm really going after Christ. And yet successful at conquering one, he never conquered the other. Say what you will about the church you cannot take down Jesus. That's where Moronihah and Lehi make a stand and Bountiful stands. There's no conquering it. Later in Helaman, now in chapter 4, the Lamanites and Nephite dissenters, these are Gadians and robbers, they conquer Zarahemla yet again and they drive out the righteous. But where do the Nephites go? They go to Bountiful. If you ever need to retreat and regroup in the face of dissension and opposition, Come to Jesus, come to Bountiful, come to his house and find refuge there. In Helaman 5, right after Nephi and Lehi learned to build their foundation upon the rock of the Redeemer, where do they go to begin their ministry? They go to Bountiful. They start their ministry at the city Bountiful. And in 3 Nephi 3, where do the Nephites gather to wait out the Lamanite siege? Like I said last week, they gather in the area that encompasses Zarahemla and Bountiful, from church to temple, from prophets to the Lord. 
that is where we can come to be safe. That is our place of gathering. As Joseph Smith himself taught, why have the people of God gathered in any age? It's to build temples. And here they are gathering this great multitude to the land bountiful so they can be at the temple. No better place to anticipate the coming of Christ. What were they doing there? Verse 1, they were marveling. They were wondering one with another. They were showing one to another the great and marvelous change which had taken place. But what kind of change, I wonder? Just the physical changes all around them, these cataclysmic events, the whole face of the earth deformed like we saw in earlier chapter, or the kinds of changes that they have been working out within themselves. Isn't that what the voice had said through the darkness? You were only spared because you were more righteous than others, but there is yet need to become more righteous still. So repent, return unto me. My arm of mercy is stretched out still. I wonder, are those the great and marvelous changes that have taken place within each of them? In verse 2, they are conversing about this Jesus Christ, of whom the sign had been given concerning his death. Samuel had prophesied of him, and he had introduced himself far more directly in those earlier chapters. And then in verse 3, while they were thus conversing one with another, they heard a voice. There's been a lot of speaking from heaven lately. This time they didn't understand it, though. They cast their eyes round about, for they understood not the voice which they heard. They did recognize that it was not a harsh voice. It wasn't a loud voice. But notwithstanding it was a small voice, it did pierce them that did hear to the center, insomuch that there was no part of their frame that it did not cause to quake. Yea, it did pierce them to the very soul and did cause their hearts to burn. Back in chapter 8, we saw a lot of quaking of the earth. Well, now it's them quaking. Earlier, we saw the burning of Zarahemla. Well, now it's their hearts that are afire. God has always been trying to reach the inside of them, and it's happening. Verse 4, they still don't understand it, even as it speaks a second time. But then the third, they do understand. Verse 6, the third time they understood the voice. But verse 5 tells us why. What did they do the third time that they didn't do the first and second? First, they opened their ears to hear it. This sounds like a lot more active kind of listening than simply, oh, I think I heard something. I mean, they heard every time, but this time they opened their ears. Is there a focus there? An active rather than a passive heeding of God's voice. Secondly, their eyes were towards the sound thereof. In fact, they're looking steadfastly towards heaven from whence the sound came. We saw the interplay of eyes and ears in the chapters of destruction. Well, now we see them here as this voice from heaven is beckoning them. I have a brother-in-law who is truly a celestial soul. The man has a heart of gold. He's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And he's one of the most soft-spoken people I've ever met in my life. When I first met him, when he began dating my sister-in-law, we'd get together and, you know, get to know each other and do things together. And I just remember how quietly he spoke. And he was amazing. I wanted to, I wanted to hear him. But I found myself just silencing everything and leaning forward and intently staring at his mouth, hoping that somehow I could lip read. I opened my ears. My eyes were towards the sound. I looked steadfastly. And it was always worth it. 
I'm grateful that I understood the voice. Better yet, I'm grateful I came to know the man behind that voice. To this day, I don't think I've ever heard harshness or loudness from this amazing disciple. Well, having paid the price to understand, what did they hear? Verse 7, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name, Hear ye him. They had earlier been listening to the Son. Now they are hearing the Father, saying what he always seems to say on such occasions. Ever since the fall, Christ has become our intermediary, he who stands between the Father and his fallen children in order to connect the two, to reconcile us to God. Well, that's always been the Father's will, and he's introducing the Son and inviting us to hear him. Think baptism of Jesus. Think first vision. Such an incredible moment. Verse 8, as they understood, they cast their eyes up again towards heaven. Behold, they saw a man, capital M, descending out of heaven, and he was clothed in a white robe, and he came down and stood in the midst of them. Those white robes would bespeak purity, but I love the description of a man descending. Because man, capital M, suggests the incarnation, that the Word of God was made flesh. God becomes man, and he descends. That bespeaks condescension. Incarnation and condescension, that is Christmas and Easter all wrapped up in one. This is Jesus once of humble birth, now in glory comes to earth. And he's here right in front of them, standing in the midst of them. What do they do? The eyes of the whole multitude were turned upon him. They durst not open their mouths. Up to this point, they've been looking around at all these great and marvelous changes in the land. They've been conversing about all kinds of things. Now, every mouth is silent. I'm here to listen, not to speak. They wist not what it meant. They thought it was an angel that had appeared unto them. They're still unsure or perhaps at least struggling to come to terms with something that is too good to be true. And yet it's true. Verse 9, he stretches forth his hands and he says to them in 10, Behold, I am Jesus Christ. Just like he'd said through the darkness months and months ago. But notice the first thing he says after stating his name. I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. It's amazing that in the same breath, he brings in his servants. He vindicates them every time. I came just like they said I would. Their voice was my voice. We are one. I am here, and I hope you're here to hear me. But you could have been hearing my servants for centuries before. Generation by generation. They testified of me. I now testify of them. I've got their back. They've always had mine. He then says in verse 11, I am the light and the life of the world. Again, overcoming the days of darkness and destruction that came upon the world when that light was extinguished. I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me. This is the same cup that he had asked three times to have removed from him. Is there no other way? This is the same cup he mentions in section 19 when he describes his atonement as more bitter and more exquisite, more sore and more hard to bear than anything we can imagine. 
to the point that he wanted to shrink and not partake of the bitter cup. And yet, as he says in that verse, glory be to the Father, I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. Do you hear that? Glory be to the Father, all credit to him for not giving me any other options, for making sure that I knew that there was no other way, that the cup was there and I would have to drink it to the dregs. Well, thanks be to him. Glory be to the Father. That's how I glorified his name, by partaking of that bitter cup. I have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. That seems to be the one thing he wants us to know about himself first. I am an obedient son, a submissive child of a loving and glorified father. I did what he asked, even though it cost me everything. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, years and years ago, even before he was an apostle, said this in an address at BYU. I have thought very often about this moment in Nephite history. I cannot think it either accident or mere whimsy that the good shepherd in his newly exalted state, appearing to a most significant segment of his flock, chooses first to speak of his obedience, his deference, his loyalty, and loving submission to his father in an initial and profound moment of spellbinding wonder, when surely he had the attention of every man, woman, and child as far as the eye could see, his submission to his Father is the first and most important thing he wishes us to know about himself. Frankly, I'm a bit haunted by the thought that this is the first and most important thing he may want to know about us when we meet him one day in similar fashion. Did we obey, even if it was painful? Did we submit, even if the cup was bitter indeed? Did we yield to a vision higher and holier than our own, even when we may have seen no vision in it at all? Those are haunting questions to ask ourselves. Jesus could answer them boldly. I did. And he could add, and with my help so can you. With my grace I will enable you to obey. Now in verse 12, when Jesus said this, the whole multitude falls to the earth. They finally understand this is no angel. This is the Son of God. It reminds you of the New Testament when the apostles finally get it. Jesus really has been resurrected. He lives. And it's like how many times in the New Testament had Jesus not told them already? Okay, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'll be betrayed. I'll be crucified. On the third day, I will rise again. Do you get this? And it's like the apostles are kind of looking at each other, not wanting to admit, I have no idea what he's talking about. And they're like, yeah, we understand. But it's totally over their head. And I can't blame them. No one had ever been resurrected before. They're probably thinking, is this another one of these parables he keeps talking about? When he said that he was going to wake up Lazarus because he was sleeping, well, that was just a metaphor. So maybe this is probably some kind of metaphor too. None of them got it until they saw and touched and knew. Well, I can't blame these people for not getting it either. But Mormon does point out there in the middle of verse 12 that when they fell to the earth, they remembered it had been prophesied among them that Christ should show himself unto them after his ascension into heaven. That's what they meant. This has been told us repeatedly. The Lord then speaks to them and says in verse 14, 
arise and come forth unto me. He always says that. When we recognize who we are compared to who he is and instinctively fall to our knees, he never leaves us there. It's always get up and come. You're more like me than you realize. At least you can be. That's what I've come for. So arise and come forth unto me. For them specifically, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet. Come and touch. There will be no doubting Thomases after today. And not just a soft verb like feel the prints, but a much more bold one like thrust your hands into my side. This is not a timid touch. This is a bold embrace. Thrust your hands into my side. It reminds me of Simeon when Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus to the temple. Remember this old man, Simeon, had had the Spirit's witness to him that someday he would live to see the Lord's Christ. That's it. Just see him. But when he recognizes in the baby Jesus the fulfillment of this promise, he's not content to see only. It's like little kids. Like, hey, can I see that? And you're like, well, you see with your eyes, not with your hands. No. Simeon wanted to see with his hands too. And he took the baby Jesus in his arms. That's my kind of seeing things, right? Thrust your hands. Take him in. Embrace him. Don't just keep some casual or formal distance. Jesus wants us to become one with him. So go ahead and see and feel, but thrust your life into mine. Become one with me, yoked together. Come boldly to the throne of grace. You're welcome here. He goes on in verse 14, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel. And not just them. That's still too narrow. I'm also the God of the whole earth because I've been slain for the sins of the world. I'm no local Lord. I'm the Savior of the world. And I want to be with you. I want you to be with me. In verse 15, it came to pass that the multitude went forth. Notice he came to them miraculously, but he does expect them to come to him, to go forth. And they did as invited. They thrust their hands into his side. They felt the prints of the nails in his hands and his feet. They go forth one by one. That phrase has been talked about often. That in our ordinances for ourselves and even for the dead, they are always done one by one. The greatest ministering we do is one by one. As Elder Bednar has taught, when apostles go to state conferences, it's not just to reorganize a stake. It's to meet the needs of individuals one by one by one. I tend to teach large classes at the Institute, but I think the most important teaching I ever do is right here in this office, looking across at a student who has come and needs one-on-one -on -one attention. In my work trying to fortify people's faith or help them navigate faith crisis, yes, I try to approach the mass and videos or podcasts or lessons and things like that. But the greatest good, I think, happens individually. Doctors, after all, cannot diagnose a multitude. They have to take individual temperatures, prescribe individual doses. They have to work one by one. 
but it's one by one until all are done. They all go forth. They all have this experience. If you think about it, if you ponder your bountiful experiences at the most sacred of places where we can come to know Christ, don't we have one-on-one experiences and one-by-one experiences there? Isn't it there that we get our own chance in God's special way to feel the prince in his hands, to be one with Jesus, not just to experience what it's like to be with him, but in an amazing way to experience what it's like to be him, to feel the prince of nails, to feel what it's like to be a savior on Mount Zion, to feel what it's like to vicariously take somebody else's place and to minister to one by one until all are done. After they have that sacred experience, they see with their eyes, they feel with their hands, they know of a surety and they bear record that it's him. He of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. Again, tying it back into prophets have always been speaking of this. It's amazing how much street cred prophets are given throughout the scriptures. But think about the order of those verbs. Do we have experiences in our lives where we see things? Is there outward evidence that God has given us? But does that sight, that kind of more rational approach, then turn into feeling things? The head settles down into the heart, and we have felt truth. Have we had those kinds of experiences? The spiritual ones, not just the sighted ones, but with sight and with spirit, seeing and feeling, then does it go into truly knowing, knowing of a surety? That's the basis of our faith. Our testimony is secure. And then what do we do? We bear record of it because testimony is found in the bearing of it as well for both us, the bearer, and the other person, the receiver. Verse 16, they all go forth. They all witness. They do it for themselves. And then they cry out with one accord saying, verse 17, Hosanna. Blessed be the name of the Most High God. And they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. This is a Hosanna shout for the ages. One that begins with recognition and ends with real worship. In verse 18, the Lord then calls for Nephi. For Nephi was among the multitude. Jesus commands him that he should come forth. I love the fact that he had to be invited out of the multitude. He didn't separate himself from them. He didn't consider himself, well, well, I'm in charge of this group, and so I should probably be leading the way. I, I should be Jesus's host and begin to introduce him to the multitude. It's like, no, no, no. I am no different from the rest, and I'm just here to learn and shout and worship. I'm one of the one by one not putting himself on any higher pedestal. There's only one pedestal here, and it's occupied. Jesus then coaxes him out. Nephi, I do have something for you. Verse 19, Nephi arises. He comes forth. He bows himself before the Lord, and he kisses his feet. Such humility, such meekness, such gratitude, such love. This is a male equivalent of that incredible female in the New Testament who washes Jesus' feet with her tears and hair. There's an intimacy here 
between master and servant, between Lord and disciple, that is profound. In verse 20, the Lord commands him that he should arise. He arises and stands before him. And then the Lord says, I give unto you power that you shall baptize this people when I am again ascended into heaven. He gives that same authority in verse 22 to others, the power to baptize, which is so interesting. Nephi has been baptizing a lot already. We saw that as an effect of Samuel the Lamanite's ministry. He's up crying repentance. And even after he leaves, those who believe him go and seek out Nephi who baptizes them. Notice it's not authority he gives, it's power. And it may simply be a confirmation of the authority that Nephi already has. And perhaps confirmation that baptism is still needed even after this experience with Jesus Christ. After I ascend to heaven, baptizing will still occur. And I want the multitude to know what you and I already know. You have my authority, Nephi, and other disciples. From 22 to 27, he describes how those baptisms are supposed to take place. He starts with the phrase, on this wise shall ye baptize. In 23, he says, whoso repenteth of his sins through your words. So hear the word that will spark your faith, that will spur your repentance and desireth to be baptized in my name. So again, that's part of that faith. There has to be desire for this. On this wise shall ye baptize them. Behold, ye shall go down and stand in the water, and in my name shall ye baptize them. So this has to be done in the name of Christ. Behold, these are the words which ye shall say, calling them by name. This is a one-by-one one experience, right? And each one is known of the Lord. So call them by name and say, Having authority given me of Jesus Christ. That seems to be what he was trying to reaffirm back in 21 and 22. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In our day we say, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, which is the same thing as having authority given me of Jesus Christ. And that baptism then takes place under Christ's authority, but in the name not only of Christ, but of the Father and the Holy Ghost as well. Reminds me of an experience I had in divinity school where there were three of us in a classroom waiting for the rest of the students to come and class to begin. There was me, a Latter-day Saint. There was a Catholic preparing for the ministry and a Protestant preparing for the ministry. Sounds like the beginning of a good joke, right? A Catholic, a Protestant, and a Mormon are sitting in a classroom together. Well, they started talking about the Trinity. And they asked me, wait, Mormons, you guys, do you guys believe in the Trinity? And I knew I needed to be careful with my statement, my answer. See, I was afraid if I said no, then they'd leave thinking, man, Mormons don't believe in the Father or the Son or the Holy Ghost. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, first article of faith, anyone? Right off the bat? So I said to them, you know, when I was baptized, back to this topic, I was baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And they were like, what, really? You guys believe in the Trinity? I said, to be clear, we believe in the members of the Trinity but not the doctrine of the Trinity. And they were like, huh? What's the difference? I said, we do believe in Father and Son and Holy Ghost. We just don't believe in the post-biblical creedal pronouncement that those three are one. We believe in their oneness in purpose, their oneness in attributes. We'll see that oneness described in this chapter. Jesus affirms it here. But we do not believe in their oneness in substance. We don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, but the members of it, 
we do believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. We are baptized in the name of each of them. And then verse 26, they are immersed in the water and come forth again out of the water. Like Paul taught in the book of Romans, we are buried with Jesus. We're all under, all in, and then he brings us out again. Rise with Christ, buried with Christ so that we may live again in Christ. Verse 27, he reaffirms it. After this manner shall ye baptize in my name. That's how it's done. And then reaffirms this oneness in purpose and spirit that I just hinted at, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one, and I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. He'll say that again a few more times. In fact, it struck me once, years ago, it, it hit me how often, I was reading Third Nephi, I'm like, man, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are mentioned a lot. And I was so intrigued by that that I actually went through and reread the whole book of 3 Nephi, seeing every time the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost were mentioned. And you almost get this sense, especially in chapters like chapter 11, that if the three of them were standing together and you were to ask the group, which one of you three is the most important? Then simultaneously, all three would go. And they'd point at the other two. There is such a oneness in this unity the members of the Godhead, each testifying of one another. And as Jesus says in the great intercessory prayer in John 17, it's that kind of oneness that he seeks in his followers as well. Well, this is the one baptism that is trying to help us become as one with Jesus as he is as one with the Father and the Spirit. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus would begin this ministry among the Nephites with something as simple as baptism. This is fourth article of faith material. He's speaking of faith in himself. Come and see. I want you to know for yourselves that it really is me. I've been crying repentance to you directly since the beginning of the year, and I'll continue to cry it here. But then baptism, true conversion and immersion in this life of discipleship. And then the Spirit will come and confirm that this was the right decision for you. Confirm his presence in your life. Confirm the oneness that you are developing with the Father and the Son. Now, there's something else here, though, that he mentions at the end of 22 and then says in 28 and 29. There's another reason that he wants to start with something as simple as baptism. Because it's such an essential doctrine or practice, but there seems to be some confusion over it. That's definitely true in our day. Evidently, it was true in theirs. You see at the end of 22? When he says, on this wise shall you baptize, and there shall be no disputations among you. Remember we started in 35.8 today with doubtings and disputations? Well, there seems to be argument because I'm so convinced that this is the right way. And when it comes to religion, you better have it the right way. So no wonder disputations arise over these kinds of doctrinal matters. He repeats it in 28. According as I have commanded you, thus shall ye baptize, and there shall be no disputations among you, as there have hitherto been. Yeah, I'm aware of it. You wonder if right then several of the disciples are looking at each other kind of awkwardly like, uh, sorry I disagreed with you or disputed with you about this. I just, I know how important it is. I want to make sure we get it right. Again, the Lord would say, yeah, I want you to get it right too. Twice I've said, this is the way it's supposed to be done. But twice I've also said, no disputations. Yes, I care about orthodoxy, but I care about unity even more. 
Not unity in avoidance of orthodoxy, but unity on the way towards orthodoxy. You understand the difference there? I want you to get it right. I want you to understand the truth. This does matter to me. I'm not completely dismissing it just so that we can all feel good about things and be one in things that don't matter. This isn't relativism that says, no, you do it your way, I'll do it mine. It doesn't really matter. It does matter. There are truths there that matter, that are non-negotiable. But Christ's preliminary concern seems to be unity, oneness. You can't fight on your way toward rightness. Why? Because look at 29. He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me. It's of the devil. He's the father of contention. And I need you to become the children of God. He's the father of contention. He stirs up the hearts of men to contend with anger, one with another. Probably more accurately, one against another. Maybe that's another reason why he's talking about the oneness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Yeah, we're different. We're separate entities. But we have become so truly one that we can claim that oneness, that unity. You've got to learn to do the same. Because division, contention, one against another, anger, stirring up, that's all the adversary. And I love the fact that he's not just talking about we need to be one back in the war chapters. He's talking about needing to be one in doctrinal discussions. The goal you're seeking, orthodoxy, is a beautiful place to aim. But I don't just care about the destination. I care about the journey. You have to learn to get along along the way. Now, with the possible exception of politics, I think religion is one of those things that this kind of non-disputatious, non-contentious unity is hardest to come by. Maybe that's why politics and religion seem to be the two topics that no one's allowed to talk about. But talk about important topics, especially as we're trying to get to know each other. Politics, how do you think society should be organized? And religion, how do you describe reality itself? But because those are such big deals, that's probably why they become so contentious. Because they mean everything to us. This is how society is supposed to run. Or this is how we're supposed to view the world, the universe, and our place in it. People don't tend to get really contentious or violent over favorite foods or favorite colors. We start to see it in things like sports. For some reason, it matters so much to us that my team against your team the thought of agreeing to disagree or just respecting each other's opinions or just hoping that a good game is played by all, some sportsmanship here, oh, heaven forbid. But especially when it comes to politics and religion, we're so convinced that there's only one right way and it happens to be ours. No wonder we get angry. There's actually a fascinating study that they did of religion in America, and the, the authors of this study described the challenge, the tension that exists between diversity on the one hand and devotion on the other. If you have both diversity and devotion, that's a recipe for disaster. Now, if it's one or the other, then you can tend to get away with it. They said, for example, places uh, with high devotion but low diversity don't seem to have problems because everybody feels passionately about what they believe, but they all believe in the same thing. You can probably think of some places in the world that are like that. High devotion, low diversity. We all get along. The flip side is also okay. Lots and lots of diversity, but very low levels of devotion. 
It's like, oh, we don't agree with each other. But hey, we don't really care about the things we're disagreeing about. You do you, I'll do me, it's fine. Again, easy to get along. Where it gets tricky, they pointed out, is in places where there is both high diversity and high devotion. We feel passionately about our differences. And like I said, religion seems to be the epicenter of those kinds of conflicts. I love that the Lord stares right into that religious bullseye and says, even in that kind of a place, which does really matter, I believe in orthodoxy, but in your efforts to arrive at it, you have to learn to get along. I love doing interfaith work. I loved my time in divinity school, rubbing shoulders with people that theologically did not agree with each other. And yet, we saw the goodness in one another. We cheered each other on as we were trying to become instruments in God's hand. However, we saw that instrument being used. There was high diversity and high devotion at divinity school. And I was grateful for it. I'm grateful for friends of other faiths that believe passionately about their doctrines. And when we discuss things, and I have those experiences fairly frequently, I love them. When we discuss things, we don't always agree with each other. But there never seems to be contention. Disagreement doesn't have to be disputation. We don't have to fight over faith. Jesus connects this idea of doctrine and the need to avoid disputation in verse 30. Behold, this is not my doctrine to stir up the hearts of men with anger one against another. But this is my doctrine that such things should be done away. So interesting that that doesn't seem to be a doctrine we fight over. In our zeal to defend certain pet doctrines, how come we don't seem to care so much about that particular one? He calls it a doctrine too. So please, in your efforts to defend fill-in-the-blank doctrine, make sure that you are all the while following the doctrine of non-disputation. No contention. Maybe that's why it's so hard to do in the realm of religion. It's a fusing of the two great commandments. We defend doctrine because we want to keep the first great commandment, loving God. But are we loving neighbor all along the way? You can't divorce the two. Verse 31, he then shifts to what we more typically consider the doctrine of Christ. Verse 31, I say unto you, I will declare unto you my doctrine. And in verse 39, skipping ahead, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that this is my doctrine. So between 31 and 39, this is the doctrine of Christ. Remember 2 Nephi 31? Nephi did the same thing. He starts the chapter, I want to teach you the doctrine of Christ. He ends the chapter, and that was the doctrine of Christ. So in between, guess what? It was the doctrine of Christ. Same thing here. And here it is, verse 32. This is my doctrine, and it is the doctrine which the Father hath given unto me, and I bear record of the Father, and the Father beareth record of me, and the Holy Ghost beareth record of the Father and me, and I bear record that the Father commanded... You see what he's doing? They're, they're pointing... <laughs> each of the three is pointing in both other directions. We're all one in this. We'll back each other up to the very end. And here's the doctrine that the Father commands all men everywhere to repent and believe in me. There's faith and repentance, the first principles of the gospel. Then in verse 33, whoso believeth in me and is baptized, now we've got the first ordinance of the gospel, 
the same shall be saved, and they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. Whoso believeth not in me and is not baptized shall be damned. Now, it sounds harsh, but if you think of damnation in terms of rivers can no longer pass this point, the progress is stopped. There's something about relationships that they cannot progress until you commit to them. It's actually one of the reasons behind that ironic fact that relationships that begin living together in marriage rather than in mere cohabitation are actually more successful, not less. You'd sort of think that, oh, no, we're kind of trying things on, you know, and, and moving together as if we were, we're, we're pretending, we're playing house, and then we can decide if we want to stick with this or not. No, the more successful relationships are the ones based in faith and commitment, that we love each other and we believe in each other and we believe that our marriage is going to work out and we're just going to launch in. We're going to fully commit. We're going to make a covenant. That's baptism or marriage in this case. And it's the covenant, the commitment that allows the relationship to progress, to develop. Especially you young single adult institute students. You ever been in a relationship that just doesn't seem to be going anywhere because neither party will fully commit to the other? Well, that relationship is damned. Well, at least for the meantime. Until people have the courage to make a commitment, a covenant. And then it progresses. Verse 35, Verily, verily, I say unto you that this is my doctrine. And I bear record of it from the Father, and whoso believeth in me, believeth in the Father also. And unto him will the Father bear record of me, for he will visit him with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Now we have the second ordinance of the gospel, confirmation. What's he just taught? The fourth article of faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, and the receipt of the Holy Ghost. That's all what's going to happen. That's the doctrine of Christ. Verse 36, Thus will the Father bear record of me, and the Holy Ghost will bear record unto him of the Father and me. They're pointing fingers again. For the Father and I and the Holy Ghost are one. One with each other, and we want to be one with you. If you'll just be one with us and one with each other. If you are not one, you are not mine. It's just the way it works. Verse 37 then, Again I say unto you, you must repent and become as a little child and be baptized in my name, or ye can in no wise receive these things. And again I say unto you, ye must repent and be baptized in my name and become as a little child, or ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Now that seems redundant, and it is. He basically says the same thing in 37 and 38. And perhaps that redundancy is meant to rivet our attention to the importance of this doctrine. But then again, there is one slight difference between the two verses. The first one, the order, is to repent and become as a little child and be baptized. The second time, it's repent and be baptized and become as a little child. Now, did he mean to switch the order there? I don't know. But I think there's a lesson worth learning there. Because becoming childlike, depending on the first or the second reading, both precedes and follows the covenant we make with Christ. I think, unfortunately, sometimes we think that the childlike stage of our discipleship is early on, and then we outgrow it. We mature beyond it. And being childlike is not one of those childish things that Paul says we're supposed to outgrow. Remember how King Benjamin says it? 
that we're supposed to put off the natural man and become a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord. And then he continues, and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit. Remember what Jesus said when he first descends? Willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. All of those things Jesus had done in his atonement. And all of those things are things that prepare us for the covenant with Christ that we make at baptism. But they don't go away after that. Being willing to make that covenant, to lower ourselves to the point of recognizing our nothingness, and laying hold of the fullness that God is offering us instead, it will take all of those childlike attributes. But honestly, I think I have felt the need in my own discipleship of childlike faith and simple trust, meekness and humility, a willingness to, to submit. I think I've needed all those attributes more after my baptism than ever I needed before them. Unfortunately, they came more naturally then than they have since. All the more reason to ground myself in the faith and repentance that will bring me back to that. You understand what I'm saying? Stay childlike. What got you to the point of your covenant is what is going to allow you, enable you, empower you to keep that covenant going forward. It's being childlike. It's of such as the kingdom of heaven. 39 then, again, he gives this second bookend, the final, this is my doctrine, and then adds, and whoso buildeth upon this, buildeth upon my rock. So says the rock of the Redeemer, the rock of heaven, the rock that is no longer shaking beneath their feet like it was a few chapters ago. And if you'll build on that rock, then the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Beyond that, verse 40, if you declare more or less than this and establish it for my doctrine, you say, no, this is one of those non-negotiables as well. The same cometh of evil. You're not built upon my rock. You're built upon a sandy foundation. The gates of hell stand open to receive such when the floods come and the winds beat upon them. Not if, when. They'll come. Now, I don't think he's saying there's no other doctrine than this. There's all kinds of other teachings that are important. And he's going to teach a lot of them in the next few chapters. The rest of 3 Nephi, really, is full of additional doctrine that we need to understand. But in terms of establishing it for my doctrine, as if those other things were foundational to the same degree that faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost are. If you're emphasizing those things at the expense of these, then you got a problem. Or even this idea of a foundation. What you build on top may be amazing. These other doctrinal superstructures, you, you name the theology, whatever it might be, those can be incredibly well-constructed, beautiful edifices up top. But if they are not firmly rooted in the bedrock doctrine of Christ, faith in Christ, repentance through Christ, covenant with Christ, confirmation of Christ, if we're not built in Him, then that foundation is on sandy ground and no matter how beautiful the superstructure, it will collapse when the floods and wind comes. So what are you built on? Remember John 15 when Jesus says that I am the true vine 
And if you separate yourself from me, then you will wither. The same is true doctrinally. That's why every doctrine we ever teach needs to be inseparably connected, rooted and founded in the doctrine of Jesus Christ. If it's separated from that true vine, it'll wither. A dangling doctrine becomes a dead one once you've separated it from Jesus Christ. Think about that the next time you give a talk or a lesson on any other subject. Is there a way that you can explicitly, clearly, directly connect it back to Jesus Christ and the beliefs and behaviors, faith and repentance, the covenants and commitments, baptism and Holy Ghost that bind us to him? And then he concludes, verse 41, Go forth unto this people and declare the words which I have spoken. In fact, did I just say this people? Yeah, good place to start. But declare it unto the ends of the earth. There is these concentric circles of concern that just keep spreading. The risen Lord did the same thing in the book of Acts, chapter 1. When he says to his assembled apostles there to go and preach this message in Jerusalem. And then he expands it. Well, let's make that all Judea. And then he expands it. Well, let's make that Samaria. And then he expands it. Ah, what the heck. The uttermost parts of the earth. I love that. He's doing that here as well. And we will shortly see his people following that direction. We've got to get the water to the end of the row. The living water. So says the water himself. I love 3 Nephi 11. I'm just missing some Puerto Rican investigators in front of me. And I'm back in the mission field from 20 plus years ago. Reading this climactic chapter with people trying to decide for themselves how they feel about the doctrine of Christ and how they feel about this book in which it is contained. Did Jesus really come to the Americas? Did he visit other sheep in another fold? We will see this ministry unfold over the next several weeks. And it's a masterpiece. What he says, what he does among these multitudes is life-changing. It was for them. It can be and needs to be for us. I bear you my witness that Jesus is the Son of God, that he descended among these people in a similar way as he will descend in the world at his second coming. And perhaps even more personally and more importantly, he wants to condescend into our lives as well. The hen is still worried about her chicks. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are still sending out invitations to each of us. I pray that we will respond to them and that we'll come running. Whatever darkness and devastation, whatever destruction or death you have felt in the third Nephi eight, nine, tens of your life, if that is the Friday of that final week of the Savior's life, I do testify that what Elder Joseph B. Worthland said in an incredible talk is true. That no matter how dark your Fridays are, Sunday will come. Easter Sunday. The risen Lord, 3 Nephi 11. Hold out for that. Watch earnestly for it. Talk to others about it. But open your ears and train your eyes and prepare for the coming of Christ into your life. He lives and he wants to come to you. So come to him.